Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. All right, two quick housekeeping notes up front. First, as a reminder, Richard and I will be taking on two second-year law students in the spring so that they can take over this podcast next school year. Uh, For anyone who may be interested, I think it's important to know that this podcast is produced for class credit, and it counts for one of the required experiential learning classes. It does take a lot of work to produce these episodes, but it's really nothing short of a labor of love and has decidedly become one of my favorite parts of law schools. Second note, I want to remind any listeners that they are welcome to come on the show and talk about pretty much anything that interests them. Essentially, nothing is off-limits topic-wise. All of our guests to this point have found it to be an extremely fun experience and not nearly as intimidating as it might seem, so please... Reach out to either Richard or me if you have any interest in coming on the show. All right, Richard is off this episode, but I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with Kate Malcolm. Kate is a third-year law student at Loyola Chicago. She's in the Master of Social Work program, and she is somebody that I'm extremely proud to say is a close personal friend and a former roommate of mine. Okay, folks, uh, this episode is one of the heavier ones. Kate and I discuss social justice, Specifically, we talk about intersectionality, white privilege, we talk about gender. These are all hot-button topics at the moment, but I think that's what makes conversations like the one we had so vital. Uh, And while Kate and I disagree on some points, there's also quite a bit we do agree on, and we never really shied away or gave up on going through any of these difficult topics. By no means do I come off as perfect during this interview, and you'll definitely hear me struggle to understand a lot of the concepts Kate's trying to teach me about. But it's for that reason that I believe this dialogue is so useful. And really more than anything, I hope that this conversation can serve as a template for how you might broach some of these subjects with people in your own life. So without any further ado, give it up for the great and powerful Kate Malcolm. All right, I'm here with Kate Malcolm. Kate, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, we're going to talk today, basically in the email that you sent us, you wanted to, you kind of expressed the fact that you want to rehabilitate the idea of social justice a little bit. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think especially at the law school, um, well, in general, in this time, we kind of uh, attribute a lot of things to it that aren't super accurate like even one of our friends the other day referred to me intending to be an insult as a social justice warrior Uh uh-huh and i know exactly what people mean by that but it's i have to it's (laughs) one of my favorite derogatory because it's so good but it's not so good and i think that that's sort of like where the problem lies is that whatever call me a social justice warrior i i don't take offense to that i think that we should all try to be that way and uh it just means you care about other people. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that I have said nasty things about social justice. I mean, like, <laughs> it's so easy sometimes. And it, we'll get into it more. Um, <laughs> I do want to start this podcast by just saying to you, and for mostly for the benefit of our listeners, that my intent in having you on on this show is not to just use you as a pinata. I know that this, we're going to get into some subjects 
that are going to ruffle some feathers. And it's mostly going to be me that's doing the ruffling. So just that up front, I've literally read hundreds of pages in preparation for this interview. I knew nothing about it. There's actually, I think, a lot that we're going to agree on. And then where we don't, we're just going to power through it, you know? (laughs) So you sent me an article that we're going to talk about, the Peggy McIntosh white privilege unpacking the invisible knapsack. And then we wanted to talk more generally about intersectionality and that. And then there are just so many things that fall under that canopy. I'm sure we'll have no shortage of stuff. (laughs) So let's actually start with intersectionality because that's going to form the basis for, I think, understanding this Peggy McIntosh Mm -hmm. article. So generally to you, what does intersectionality mean to you? And, uh, how does it inform the way that you go about your life, how you treat people, and just take it away, Kate. (laughs) Okay, so just for some background on it, um, intersectionality is kind of the idea. It was really started by um, black feminists kind of during the feminist movement saying like, okay, but this kind of feminism isn't really inclusive. And I mean, if you look at that history, it is very much for white feminists, and that's still kind of a term that people use sometimes. So it's this idea that you can carry more than one identity that results in oppression and uh, you might also have identities that carry privilege for you. So just as like a basis, like I carry white privilege, but I am also a woman and people have thought that I'm not going to be as good at something because of that. So that's sort of like the starting basis there, this idea that like we all have a lot of different identities and they carry different weight depending on the setting that we're in. And it doesn't need to diminish like other parts of your identity, if that makes sense. Uh, So we can like dive a little deeper into that. Yeah. So I read some pieces by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is the black feminist who originally coined the term intersectionality, Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned. Yeah idea had been floating around Mm. but she wrote it down she put pen to paper she's actually a law professor I don't know if you know this over at University of California and she runs a policy institute out there that's geared towards researching intersectionality and policies that could cure some of the perceived problems Mm -hmm. so yeah exactly what you said it's the idea that you have multiple identities like you said race gender uh, the list goes on and they intersect to create a unique experience for the perceiver. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and the reason I think that this is so important to start with is yes. that I think that for the average person, it's not something you think about constantly, and, like, that's normal. But it's something that you should do, just kind of, like, take mental stock of the identities that you're working with um, to help situate yourself in the conversation before you engage in any of these topics related to social justice that we talk about. Because I think so frequently when people try to have those conversations, they end up talking past each other because they just see their experience, but then they can't take that step outside their bubble to hear what somebody else is saying. Yeah. So this is going to get into what I was reading about that are some later iterations of the intersectional theory. Uh, A lot of it is, I'm trying to remember the name, Patricia Hill Collins, uh, she's a feminist researcher, and she uses intersectionality as a launching pad for what's basically standpoint epistemology. 
like how we know what we know is unique to the individual who is perceiving mm-hmm. it. And that is obviously something that I wholeheartedly agree with. That's just blatantly true. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll give an example, though, uh, to illustrate where I think this kind of gets misconstrued or a vulgar version of this kind of rubs me the wrong way, which is this term that goes around now like a lot, like lived experience or your truth. And that that's where I think standpoint of epistemology loses me is this idea that your truth is somehow the truth, which we all we obviously have to reconcile our identities and our experiences with the rest of the world. Right. Right. So um, I'll give. Well, an, and I think that. Oh, go ahead. You know, I mean, but I think that that's fair to a certain extent. That like, who's to say that like your truth isn't the truth? But that doesn't mean that there's like only one. You know. So, but it just requires everybody everybody to take that next step and say like yeah this is the truth for me but somebody else is gonna have something different going on right but i mean i guess we should go even down a deeper level because (laughs) maybe we're talking past each other are you of the opinion that there is objective reality out there to be discovered or are you are no i mean this is a valid question right i mean this is going to inform the way that we carry about the rest of this conversation and there is a strain of thought out there in postmodern literature and stuff that describes how there's probably or that opens the door to the question of whether there is any objective truth to be discovered so this is like a little deeper dive than i thought we'd get but i'm gonna go ahead and answer this anyway i guess that i don't generally think about it in that context, you know, because I don't think like in my day-to-day life and the way I interact with people, I need to know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And the way I treat other people and respect their experiences and want to share my experience doesn't depend on that. Right. So I think that if you... I think most people probably think in a similar way. (laughs) Right. Um, So like, yes, certainly... An important question, valid, worth discussing, but just strictly in terms of like the basis of this conversation for uh, like what is social justice and what does it mean to the way we interact with each other, I don't know that you necessarily need to like determine for sure the answer to that. Okay, so as applied to this conversation, the question of objective truth is irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Understood. No, but, but no, like, I mean, we're, but we're talking about, about this... theory right now, and uh, yeah, we're. I don't want to. Again, I don't want to have you on the show and miss the opportunity to understand what you're talking about. So I would in say terms that that's of, yeah, a little outside the scope. I mean, right, definitely a fair conversation mm-hmm. topic. Okay, so we've gone over the basic tenets of intersectionality. We've gone over the standpoint of epistemology. I do want to just expand on that for a second, which would be that I draw a distinction between the standpoint that you have the potential to have versus the standpoint that you actually do have. So a black woman, um, is, is black the right word now? Well, so it would depend. Um, People vary in how they want to identify. We could use African-American. Not everybody 
likes that. Right. Um, I mean, if you're saying someone is black, it would be with a capital B. Sure. All right. So when I say black, I'm using a capital B for the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, that's a fair point too. And that kind of like plays into this conversation is that um, people don't always like to hear this point, but because this is where people kind of like lose their minds about people who are into social justice is um, it really depends on how people want to be identified and it varies person to person and people don't like to hear that because they're like well then how am I supposed to figure yeah, this it all out there are no rules of carrying around a notepad and being like they right. like this they like that you know right and um and people think that there's it's somehow like not valid to just be like making up your own thing all the time but people aren't trying to do that they it just is the right thing to do to call somebody what they wish to be called regardless of where that falls so that was a little bit of a tangent for this particular topic but yeah so african-american or black, black are appropriate black big b um but obviously that is up for dispute right well i mean it just I remember being a kid, black was offensive. And then people of color is a common one now, too. Yeah, that's more like an academic term. Yeah, but like calling somebody a colored person. Can't do that. Can't do that, <laughs> right. And I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I'll just, I'm going to use a quick example to <laughs> illustrate everything I need to say about standpoint epistemology, and then we'll move on. Okay. Because uh, this is the heady stuff that people might even just skip over. So let's say that, for example, I am currently in a better standpoint to watch the TV show Game of Thrones as compared to somebody a hundred years ago. Agreed? Yes. Yes. But it in no way guarantees that I will watch the show Game of Thrones. And right. if I did watch it, there's a good chance that I wouldn't even understand the plot line because I wouldn't and I don't plan on watching it. But like, even if I did, I could misperceive what's happening. So that's my take on standpoint epistemology is that the first uh, premise is undisputed, but the last two are open to question, whether I will perceive that kind of discrimination and whether uh, I will even understand what's happening perfectly. That's my view of the world. Right. Because I'm more of an objectivist, but, uh, again, we'll just leave that behind. So... Well, no, but I mean, I guess that that's a fair point, is that, um, you know, even people who carry the same identities aren't going to feel the same way about the things that they experience. Right. I mean, Sasha and Malia Obama are going to have different experiences than somebody living in Englewood, you know, a young black girl living in Englewood. So, all right, where do you want to go next? Do you want to get into Peggy... Do you want to talk more about how intersectionality is being used today or what? I think the uh, Peggy McIntyre article is a good starting point. And it kind of relates to what we just talked about because um, I should have sent you this other article too. So along with unpacking the invisible knapsack, which is sort of like really well known in terms of identifying white privilege. Um, I forget the author. I'll have to find it later so you can like make a note of it. But um, <laughs> I read this really interesting response to it by this white woman who's an author, and she grew up very poor, I think in Appalachia, um, and she was like 
the glass castle kind of poor. Uh, like, no electricity, running water, like, not enough food, all these kinds of things. And she wrote this response to unpacking the invisible knapsack, kind of talking about her gut reaction to it was, well, most of these things don't apply to me either. Like, I grew up poor. I'm not privileged. I don't, I didn't have a lot of these things. Um, But then she took a second to reflect on that, and she saw this overlap of um, most of the, many of the things on this list were white privilege, but also class privilege. And the more she thought about it, the more she realized that she did still carry a lot of the white privilege, even though she didn't carry class privilege. So that kind of overlap was missing the mark a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important reflection on it because a lot of times people don't want to think about the privilege they carry because they also carry hardship and oppression and things that were really difficult for them. And, you know, people who are really successful don't want to think about privileges that helps them get there because they think it diminishes the hard work they did. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I worked really hard to get into my undergrad, to get into Loyola, and I work really hard to stay there. But I can't ignore the fact that I carry a lot of privilege that helped me get there. So I have two parents. They're still together. They're supportive of me. Um, I have class privilege in the fact that, uh, you know, I had help paying for school. I am really, really fortunate that I have that kind of help, and it lets me do the things that I do. Right. I obviously have some hot takes on this, but... Yeah. Let's let's just... uh... Send them. (laughs) I know that was a lot all at once. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't want to skirt around what she writes about in the article, too, because she lays it out in her words and I don't want to put words in her mouth. So we should go mm-hmm. through this uh, article you sent me at some point. But the the idea of privilege, I have, I'm just confused about how that ties in to the rest of what we've been talking about, intersectionality and stuff like that. Because it seems to me that you could just draw up different axes ad infinitum, like, till the end of days on which you can classify a person, you know, uh, and I'm very curious as to why it is that there seems to be these sort of token categories on which intersectionality kind of revolves around, uh, gender, race, you know, uh, sexual orientations, stuff Mm -hmm. like that, class privilege, and then why other topics that I think might be more salient or confer more privilege are kind of left out. So, I mean... Well, what do you think confers more privilege? Well, I mean, it's better to be smart than not smart. Uh, Right. Intellect is... uh, IQ is one of the most statistically significant predictors of life outcomes that you have. It's better to be healthy than sick. The the healthy are are definitely privileged over the sick. Well, that's... um, That actually is another part of identity that people don't talk about as much. I don't know why. But sort of like being able-bodied is Mm. a a privilege. And that's something that a lot of people in sort of um, the differently abled community talk about a lot. And there's that whole... I wish I could give credit to whoever this is. But um, there's that whole idea of like, it's like the spoon theory. And it's like if everybody starts the day with 
20 spoons, but you are suffering from a chronic illness, it costs you like three spoons to get out of bed in the morning. Whereas me, a healthy person, only costs me one spoon. So by the end of the day, it's just costing you a lot of extra spoons or whatever cur- <laughs> currency, whatever currency whatever, whatever you want to use. Yeah. yeah, this health currency, it costs you more to do things during the day than it does a healthy, able-bodied person to do. So it's trying to... I wish I could credit whoever came up with that theory. Uh, she wrote about it. Um, but it's this whole idea that um, even if you don't have like a, a visible disability, things are still harder for you than it is for the average person. Yeah, I mean, but there are even more. Like, I wrote down a couple I had thought of. Mm-hmm. It's better to be attractive than ugly. Attractive that's true. people, yeah, that's a privilege. They frequently get better jobs and they're paid better. It's better to be socialized than alone. That has significant life outcomes. It's better to have uh, two parents than one or no parents. Generally. I did mention that one though. I'll give you credit for that. <laughs> I'm just reading down my list. Yeah. Uh, where in the world you're born mm-hmm. can be a privilege. That divorced from race. I mean, uh, when in history you're born, it's better to be born now than a hundred years ago. Right. Because polio. Um, <laughs> so I guess those are really good points, and I think that. Um, you're getting at something that's really important that uh, the reason why we talk about that first list of identities so much class race gender why we talk about those so much is because those identities are more closely tied to uh, policy in our social systems Mm. whereas there's not I mean, there's like a psychological basis for wanting to hire somebody you find attractive over somebody else. You know, like I I get that being attractive is a privilege. We don't have a really strong historical social policy for that. Whereas we do have like a really strong historical basis for discriminating against people of color. Right. Yeah, I I think uh, I'm with you on the fact that Perhaps the big ones that we've already named are the ones that are most urgent in people's minds. But I would like to also point out that we all participate in a culture that we get to mm-hmm. part, like be help form and then we get to change a little bit. And so in terms of privilege, I think it's important to keep in mind that pretty much everyone in the world is going to be privileged in some minute way. That makes them more privileged than everyone else. I mean, you're going to know more about a subject. You're going to have better eyesight, better hearing, like something like that. Uh, and then everybody is probably going to have some tiny sliver of them that is more, quote unquote, oppressed than other people. And I think the point that I'm trying to illustrate here is that you can do this forever and just dice up people on all these different axioms. And what you're going to come out with is just the idea that an individual, an individual person is the ultimate minority of one, you know, and that perhaps using these broad brushes to just paint class groups and race and gender and identity and all this does more harm than good because ultimately we want people to be individuals, right? Right. So I think that you're bringing up a couple different issues here and something that you mentioned for like your own list of 
identities I kind of want to touch on of this difference between like if you're socialized that's a privilege versus being totally alone but that is something that we do kind of address in schools because a lot of schools are required to have uh, social emotional learning programs Mm -hmm. and sort of I mean a huge component of schools is learning pro-social behavior and that's something that you kind of see reflected in um, like adverse childhood experience scores is that if you have sort of this um, stressful environment that's uh, not stable, you know, single parent kind of household, like low income, uh, that does result in significant problems later. And uh, so having a stable home is a, is a privilege. Right. It gives you better outcomes later. Right, absolutely. And more opportunities. But I think that for some of the other things that you're talking about, like just being smarter or more knowledgeable on a topic, I don't know that that technically would be a privilege. Because if you know more about a subject, you're not privileged because you did that. You just put effort into doing that. So you could frame it sort of at a personal level of that being internal assets or, you know, a protective factor that you're able to do that work, that you're resilient, that you have a growth mindset, those kind of things, sort of like at a personal level, level, those could be protective factors, but not privileges necessarily. Um, So when you're talking about privilege, it really is more these broader systems that we're talking about. So it's not trying to impose privileges versus hardship on a system. It's looking at a system that already exists and identifying things that help people and hurt people and naming them. Okay. I'm willing to capitulate (laughs) to that for the purposes of this conversation. I I think that... Was that helpful? (laughs) It was helpful. uh, In my head right now, just honestly, it seems like a distinction without a difference to me, but I'd have to think about it more. I don't know that calling some things privileges and calling some things protective factors necessarily confers different benefits. Uh, Well, I guess the distinguish, the thing that I'm trying to sort of distinguish is whether it's like at a personal individual level or at a societal level, because I think that those are different things. Okay. And I think in terms of like social justice, they are talked about differently. Yeah, let's get more into the social justice, uh, <laughs> a.k.a. the reason that you wanted to come yes. <laughs> on the show. I'm going to hand the torch to you because I feel like I've been kind of uh, directing this conversation into places <laughs> that we didn't necessarily anticipate at the moment. So uh, why don't you tell me the things that are on your mind in terms of social justice and what you think uh, about the perception that needs to be fixed? Well... So I wanted to start by talking about intersectionality, which we did in sort of like a broad... Yeah, we juggled it a little bit. ...theoretical way. Yeah. Um, Let's get more into the nitty-gritty of it. Yeah, so I think that um, without talking about like the theory behind it, it's a good way to like ground yourself in a conversation because if I know who I am and what my worldview is and what my point of view on something is going to be, I'm going to have a much more productive conversation with somebody else. So I always enjoy our conversations because like I know what my perspective is and I know enough about you to like have an idea of what your perspective is going to be on things. And I 
personally feel more comfortable talking to people when I get what their point of view is because mm-hmm. I can frame it somehow and I don't usually get offended by people because even if I don't necessarily agree with what they're saying knowing where they're coming from makes it easier for me to say like okay well maybe I don't agree with that but I can understand why you think that right and I just think that that's a much more helpful starting place for a conversation than just saying like well that's stupid (laughs) right 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 uh so how does so intersectionality informs you understanding your own point of view yeah but I mean the fact that you understand where I'm coming from in conversations I feel like doesn't have to do with the fact that I'm a white male or does it you you're making a face (laughs) so I'm thinking it does Uh, I mean it's not with everything like if I wanted to talk to you about like movies or something you know I mean so it's not that's the whole point of it though is that it doesn't need to be the centerpiece of every conversation you have. Mm-hmm. But it should be something people are aware of when they're talking about sensitive topics. Right. Um, but I, and I feel like that's kind of stuff that you've touched on before with this is that like the whole point of the podcast really is to like get other perspectives. Right. Right. I mean, your perspective is much more, moderated than some of the noise that comes out online so i think that for that reason this is a helpful conversation for me uh is knowing that there is not it's not just the most extreme application (laughs) of intersectionality which has become a four-letter word in i think a lot of people's brains because uh you associate it with shouting down people or saying like it's time for white men to just sit down and shut up and listen you know like which so, okay, you're allowed to think that, yeah. but like that, we have to, we can't sacrifice human decency on the altar of social justice either. Right. So, right. and I think that that's a huge misunderstanding of social justice warriors, as they are called. So, the biggest thing is obviously, you can't be a bigot, you can't say offensive things, you can't say things that are intended to hurt other people. And if you say something that is offensive that you did not intend to hurt somebody else, you still have to be accountable for that and listen to the person who tells you what you said hurts me mm-hmm. and why. And it doesn't mean that you're a racist or sexist or whichever it is. It just means that you didn't know before that that it was going to hurt somebody. And now you do. Right. So one of my... But it, so it's really about accountability not an empathy yeah yeah right and one of my favorite expressions is uh calling people in rather than calling people out so if i hear somebody say something that's racist or what have you i'm not gonna say you're racist right because that's not helpful it makes people defensive and that's we're not ever going to be able to have a conversation after that i would I want to call them into the conversation and say something like, why do you think that's funny? Or, oh, what makes you say that? And hear what their rationale is. Sometimes Mm -hmm. people know that they're being offensive and they just think that it's, you know, okay. And that's harder to get past. But a lot of times people are just like, oh, I don't know. I heard the joke and laughed before, so I repeated it. And 
it's a much more helpful conversation. You can actually have a conversation about it if you ask somebody about something rather than just dismissing them. I totally agree. I think that uh, a lot of times knowing the right questions to ask and asking questions is almost a better skill to have than being a really, really good listener. Because, I mean, you can sit back and listen all day to somebody make racist jokes and uh, sit and seethe, but asking good questions, knowing how to approach somebody to elicit answers that's going to help you understand them and maybe change their mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hence the podcast. (laughs) Uh, So what else do I need to know about being a social justice oriented person? Well, so part of what drew me to Loyola for law school is uh, that in undergrad, I went to a Jesuit university and I'm not Catholic. So I didn't really think about it very much before I went to undergrad. Uh, But once I was there, I really loved the Jesuit values of being men and women for others, care for the whole person. Uh, I think that those are so important. So that's really what I was looking for in a law school as well. So Loyola ended up being a really good fit because they do really talk about applying that to lawyering um, and especially sort of like the track that I want to go on doing the JD MSW and uh, wanting to do juvenile justice reform eventually. That sort of is exactly, it's like my bread and butter, Um, like understanding the care for the whole person and being men and women for others. Um, And I think that that really is like the root of social justice, um, mm-hmm. just taking the things that you have and sharing them with others. And, um, you know, so I want to go back to a point that you made, um, a couple minutes ago yeah. about this, this being not receptive kind of from the left, from like the, yeah the misperception of social justice. Um, like white men take a seat. Um, that might, sometimes be too strong of language, but I think the way I try to approach it is um, I carry a lot of privilege. A lot of people listen to what I say. Um, I don't have a hard time getting people's attention, but I can only speak to my experiences and the populations that I want to work with or people that I want to work with, I can't speak for them because I didn't grow up the way they did. I don't have the same problems that they have. So what I really want to do is just create a platform for other people to use their voice the way I've been able to. Sure. Uh, I think that more speech and more voices is always better than fewer, Mm -hmm. which is why I totally agree with the part of elevating up people who don't have a platform. But at the expense of shouting down or that's where I, that's where it loses me is that we don't need to silence or put other voices on mute in order to add more tracks to the playlist so to speak so that's where i have a problem is this idea that by dint of some immutable qualities like your race and your sex uh that you somehow have to be tamped down, I think loses sight of the higher value, which is that we want to start a conversation. We want to understand one another. It's too harsh for me in the terms of trying to disqualify or discredit somebody 
on the basis of their skin color, like white men, shut up, which to me seems pretty racist. <laughs> uh, this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about, and you might have nothing to say about it, but this new definition of racism, which means like prejudice plus power on the basis of race. Yeah. Is that something you feel comfortable talking about? Well, you can't be racist against the people in power. Why? Because racism is dependent on structures that oppress. You can discriminate against anybody. You can be prejudiced against anybody. But we don't have the same kind of structures that oppress white people as oppress people of color. So racism hinges on the systems. Okay. <clears throat> so I feel like on this topic, people that pursue social justice did kind of hide the ball a little bit because that's definitely not the definition of racism. I think that we've known for decades, which is like prejudice based on race, making assumptions about an individual based on their race. And then they added in this element of systemic power or structural power, which I agree totally that racism plus power is way worse than racism without power. And I'm just curious as to why the power element is a necessary condition of racism, because it seems to me like it's redefining racism in order to gain what I perceive as a rhetorical advantage. Like, I don't have to call myself a racist. I'm just prejudiced. It doesn't carry the same weight. I mean, prejudice is not a thing that we should aspire to have, but racism's, like, just the venom of the word racist is, will knock the wind out of somebody. So, uh, why the necessity of power? Well, I don't know that I have a really good answer to this. Um... That... Well, that is a good answer. I mean, like, I, knowing what you don't know is more important than knowing what you know, right? Or Yeah, so even through the School of Social Work, this isn't always a topic that we do, like, such a deep dive into. I mean, there are people who have, like, PhDs in this specifically. <coughs> so I can only speak to, like, what we talk about as social workers, and that is just sort of... Um, that's the definition you guys use. No, it's or, just the idea that, like, you have to distinguish between these things. Like, everybody carries bias. Mm -hmm. Every single person. 100%. And, yes. um, you know, it's not something that we delve into as much at the law school, but it is something that, like, um, I don't know, as a psych major in undergrad and then, like, doing social work classes now, you always have to be aware of your bias. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always. Because... It's usually not malicious. It's just the way that we're raised and socialized. Everybody has it about different things based on your experiences. But you still have to be able to work with any kind of client who walks in your door. You Absolutely, know? yeah. And you have to be able to relate to them somehow. I think it's just more one of those things that like racism does have a specific definition and meaning. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think that's changed. I think we're just talking about it more specifically now. So we're getting more granular and we're refining the concept of racism, not changing the definition. Maybe. Okay. 
It's up for debate. <laughs> it's an open question. Yeah, I mean, I could be wrong about all of this. I'm convinced I'm wrong about at least some of it. I don't uh, know that there are really good right answers to any of these questions. Sure. I just try to take what I'm learning at the School of Social Work and apply it to the kind of lawyer I want to be, this kind of idea of like therapeutic jurisprudence. And I apply these Jesuit values. I'm not Catholic, but I am Episcopalian. And I hadn't <laughs> planned on talking about my faith here, but like it does play a part of the education that I want and the kind of lawyer that I want to be um, and the way I want to be with other people. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like uh, the fact that I'm more of a secular individual will help me do corporate law. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're actually having Nico on next week to debate atheism versus theism. And yeah. I have to take the theist position. So stay tuned for that <laughs> fun. Um, That'll be interesting. <laughs> that will be interesting. Uh, so we talked about, we, do you want to go through this uh, Sherry McIntosh? article yeah i mean we can hit on some of those because i feel like um i don't know i've been having trouble thinking of like good examples for some of these things but we've had a very like theoretical conversation really yeah, up and that's somewhere. where i that's where so. I, ex- I always tread into that territory and <laughs> just alienates my entire listenership <laughs> <laughs> i mean these are just like normal conversations we have over coffee like <laughs> normally though <laughs> so daily effects of white privilege and she has a list of some like 40, 50 things. Yeah, we don't have to go through all of them, but I actually am kind of curious uh, like whether you agree with some of these or not. Because it's it's certainly up for debate, and I think that, you know, that was my whole point in bringing up that um, article in response to it, is that, uh, you know, another white woman didn't agree with all of them, and mm-hmm. she identified that it was because of some class issues that she carried that, Peggy McIntosh didn't. But there are certainly other areas of this open for debate. I mean, I think my biggest critique of her list, and again, I'm going to read some of this and give my more specific thoughts. My biggest critique is just, it misses the idea of the sovereignty of the individual and as an individual person, as the best unit of analysis for understanding social context. That's my belief. I think that, you know, our whole legal system that we want to work within is based off this idea. And I think it, like, how we confer rights. And so let's just get into it. Well, actually, okay, wait. <laughs> okay, all right. Before we start this, because I want to make sure that we're having the same conversation. I think I kind of figured out where, where we're, we're missing, missing each other. Yeah, because sure. yeah, we okay. definitely are. Okay. You're really talking about everything from, like, a very individual level. Yes. And I don't know if this is just my perspective or if I've gotten there through sort of like the social work model that we use. Um, but I really, so social work, when you're like working with somebody, use um, a biopsychosocial model to do your initial analysis. And that's really sort of my starting point with a lot of things is that nobody exists in a bubble or a vacuum. So I... <coughs> I'm always looking at um, all those levels. What are your 
what's going on with you personally, what's going on with your family, what's going on in your school system, the community that you live in. There's a lot of external factors too. Sure. And I think they all count. So yeah, no, that, that might be where that we're really each other. You've really hit the nail on the head here. Is <laughs> I took the text on the page very literally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't think in these big, uh, like a canopy of different effects that might be happening on community, social level. Mm-hmm. But thought about just the validity of what she was writing. So number one, this will give, we'll just give uh, the listeners a sampling platter of these. Number one. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. And that's an effect of white privilege. Mm-hmm. I, again, it seems more like if we're going to just give the best version of that statement, like give the devil his due and really build it up, I, I would say that that's evidence of a, like a majority privilege, right? That, okay, that's a fair point to okay, make. Okay, yeah, because if I flew to China and decided to live there, I could not arrange to be in the company of people of my own race most of the time, probably. You could. There's a very large expat community there. Okay, well, do you get my <laughs> point that I'm trying to make? <laughs> yeah, well, so I guess, so I'll speak to that from sort of this perspective that I just mentioned of the biopsychosocial model. So we had this case example in one of my textbooks for social work, and... It was about this African-American teenage girl who was in high school who had previously gotten really good grades, really strong community support, good relationship with her parents, and then they moved to a nicer neighborhood and all of a sudden she was skipping school and not getting as good grades. So what's going on there? One of the things that um, they talked about in the context of that case study is that Previously, she had been in a neighborhood with mostly people who looked like her. All of her family lived there, like extended family. She lived close to the school. It was a different kind of neighborhood. And, she, it, you know, she was safe. She could just walk to the corner store, all those things. <coughs> and then her parents perceived that they were, you know, upwardly mobile financially, moved into a nicer house, nicer neighborhood, whatever, better school district. But she didn't look like any of the kids she went to school with then in this different neighborhood. Her family wasn't as close by. She didn't have her babysitting gig, so she wasn't making money. Um, She couldn't walk to the library or the corner store, so she was socially isolated. So Is that just because there weren't libraries or corner stores within walking distance? Yeah, in this okay, new neighborhood. All right. But like there wasn't but, so these are just, wasn't out of for fear that white people are going to No, no but okay. and so that, that's the point too, is that a lot of these things aren't malicious. It's not like her new neighborhood, they were like although it could happen. It's not like in this example, they were like, ooh, like don't like the new family. Right. The whole point is that the social support and sort of environmental factors that she had in her old neighborhood weren't in her new neighborhood. So yeah, so yeah. it's that point where that it was obvious because it was a change from how it was before. But do you see how if you are a black person living in a majority white neighborhood, that could be uncomfortable for you. Yeah. Uh, and, and it I could totally, be isolating. I, you, have, you have me 100% on the case study. I mean, that even goes into what I was talking about with my list that I wrote down about having friends and mm-hmm. having access to uh, things being 
sometimes a more significant privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I just want to hit home the majority versus minority distinction because she was doing great in the majority African-American neighborhood. And then she went to the majority white neighborhood. So I think it's, it, it is, a lot of this I do see as majority privilege. Some of it probably is due to skin color. Well, so I just <coughs> want to put a fine point on that, though, is that I understand what you're saying, and I agree to a certain extent, but I don't want to sterilize it too much, because if we are talking about this in the United States, you can call it majority or minority, but you know what the majority and minority are. Sure. So... Sure. Yeah, no, you I can, guess. You right. can call it something else, but if you're looking at it with how it actually impacts people, it is white privilege, even if it's if, if that's the majority. But in the United States, that's what it is. Okay, let's see. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. This one is interesting to me. Because I've never really worried about being followed or harassed. Yeah, I haven't either. Yeah. It's um, great. It's relaxing. But I know people who have been asked to leave stores. People of color? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I assume that has happened. That's stressful and embarrassing. Yeah, it's it's humiliating. I So any sense from you of how common an occurrence that is? Like... Have most black people been followed or harassed in a store or asked to leave? Or I can't speak to that. Yeah, you right. You should that, it, have somebody come on the show to talk about right. their personal experience with that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, but that to me is an operative question that I, or just at least a question I would have. Yeah. This is an odd one to me. Number eight, I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. I don't even, I'm not even sure what that means. Do you have any inclination of what that means? Yeah, so I mean, it's like why we have Columbus Day instead of Indigenous Peoples Day. It's stuff like that where, okay, and so th- so this is an example of, um, of race, but it is an example of, it's like whitewashing and straightwashing history. So have you ever been up to, uh, I think it's on Halstead in Boys Town, um, they have all those um, pillars of, famous people within the LGBTQ community. I uh, I haven't seen those, but... Okay, so, so they're up there. And a lot of them are famous people who just... People didn't really know they were part of the LGBTQ community, that they identified as bi or something like that. And that's an example of straightwashing where we just don't really talk about that part of their identity because we act like it's not important. But it is because representation matters. And that's kind of what this item is getting at. Um, And it's how we don't teach a lot of African-American history in schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a a valid critique. Is that is definitely an under-addressed subject. I mean, if you think about most of the history you learn in schools, it's straight white guys. No comment. Um. And that's, I mean, and, and that's overgeneralizing only a little bit. And obviously I haven't been in, you know, middle school or high school for a while. Right, yeah. I don't um, know what they're teaching these kids these days. <laughs> uh, but I don't think the curriculum has really dramatically changed, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is part of the problem. But we should have a curriculum that reflects 
real history and includes more women, more people of color, other kinds of identities. This is a tangential question. What is your thought about reconciling this focus on identity and race and representation with the famous Martin Luther King colorblindness platform, who was, you know, he, he's a remarkable man in history. And that's what made me think of this, is that it seems like they're at odds with one another. The idea that we should treat people on the basis of their character, not the color of their skin. This gets back to this individuality versus societal treatment uh, point that you made of mm-hmm. where my head's at versus yours. But yeah, I no, think it pins so, them together well. But I, so I think that those are actually consistent. So I think to your point of treating people as individuals, yes, that is a fair point. You should treat everybody based on their character. But from sort of like a larger societal perspective, um, there is this idea, and we're not there yet, that of promoting multiculturalism. And that doesn't erase any cultures. It just emphasizes and embraces all different cultures mm-hmm. as part of this melting pot that we're supposed to have. I, I have no problem with multiculturalism so long as it's anchored to a common set of core values like what are you worried about happening well i mean i'm gonna get so much crap for this (laughs) (laughs) this is just not gonna go well for me um well uh, let's i don't think all cultures are created equal i mean there's such thing there's an argument for cultural relativism yeah there's well i mean i think it's totally valid to say that uh the culture of Germany today is significantly better than the culture of Germany in the 1940s. Right. Right. Uh, so if we had been embracing multiculturalism back in the 40s, I would make an argument that we should not be welcoming in SS army officials or you know, leaders of the Nazi party. And I think that we can extend that argument to today where there are certain subgroups or subcultures in the Middle East particularly, that don't especially like Western values or like America so much. And I think that it's perfectly okay to say maybe we need to screen out those types of cultures, that we shouldn't encourage multiculturalism if it involves trying to bomb the World Trade Center, for example. Okay. I hear where you're coming from. I would suggest, though, that... um... You know, maybe the thing that we're trying to differentiate is not cultures, but people who do bad things and, like, dangerous political agendas, I guess? I don't know. Because I wouldn't... I mean, this is not a thing that I'm an expert on, but, like, you've seen stats on, like, the number of extremists in the Middle East compared to the number of Muslims in the world, right? Like, it's minute. So they're just not the same thing. And you can embrace multiculturalism and still say like, I don't believe in killing people. Right. I think that is 
my common set of core values that I was trying to say. <laughs> you know, like uh, I feel like most we, people agree on that point. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, <clears throat> but also ideas that we should be able to pursue our own dreams and goals without too much intervention from government. Uh, I mean, I think people have this fear that, you know, if we embrace multiculturalism, it's going to be like this slippery slope and like in 10 years, we're not going to recognize the United States. But I just don't think that's true. And I don't really think we're in any danger of that happening because we've been a melting pot for a long time and we do have the constitution and like we have this like social contract and uh, like people want to come here and be a part of that. And they just want to continue to be who they are right. and be Americans. Right. So yeah. I think that like these ideas are all pretty consistent. I, I have no problem with multiculturalism as so long as it assimilates to these common goals that we all have. Because the social fabric is so important. And I, I do think it's too alarmist to say that we're on the brink of losing the America that we know, right? But <laughs> yeah, so for the record... Not opposed to multiculturalism. <laughs> if for no other reason, the food's delicious. Well, right? <laughs> uh, all right, so we've touched on multiculturalism. Do you want to keep going through Peggy McIntosh? Yeah, I'm or... kind of curious uh, about your thoughts on some of the other ones in there. Because I think that a lot of them, everything is up for debate. Mm-hmm. Okay, this one stuck out to me because it seems a little outdated. Um Number I think f- this is from the 80s. It it, is pretty It's old. from 1988. Yeah. yeah. 45. I can expect figurative language and imagery and all of the arts to testify to experience experiences of my race. I, I'm very confused by the word testify. She uses that a lot. Like, testify in what sense? Like, I don't even know what that means in this context. I don't know. I guess it just means sort of like it speaks to. Right. Uh, her personal experience opine to the experiences of my race and so that one i just thought was outdated because black culture definitely has an outsized influence on pretty much fashion music uh a lot of entertainment i just watched an interesting documentary that was about black documentary filmmakers Hmm. it was pretty cool huge subculture in new york and the late 80s, early 90s of black documentary filmmakers. and They'd have like these private screenings and they'd just be packing the house every night. It's definitely been a slower crawl to like big media though. You know, like um, television more so is definitely more diverse now, um, but movies much less so. Yeah, did you see Black Panther? Yes. Was it It good? was amazing. Yeah. I'm not going to watch that or Game of Thrones. I, and for the record, I just hate fantasy and I hate superheroes <laughs> and I hate science fiction. I hate all of it. Okay, I can choose blemish color cover or bandages in flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. All right, so this probably doesn't relate to you as much because you don't wear makeup that I know of. Mm-hmm. But this is only a little outdated. I mean, I think that more recently this has become a topic that people speak on more um like i don't know that this is what you thought you were going to talk about on your podcast but like rihanna's uh makeup line has like 40 different shades of oh. makeup so, and it's for you know Do people you of it? all skin tones uh no i don't because one of my white privileges is that i can buy white 
skin tone cover up at a CVS for like $5, you know? <clears throat> so like it is still a privilege. Like the price point on that makeup is more expensive. I, I think uh, that one for me, full confession, I rolled my eyes when I first read it, but it like, it makes sense. People want to be acknowledged. I just happen to believe that markets will generally fill in these gaps. I mean, honestly, I, I don't think that any makeup brand wants to lose out on 13% of the market, which is uh, African-Americans. Mm -hmm. Same with Band-Aids and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm not made acutely aware that my shape, bearing, or body odor will be taken as a reflection on my race. Uh, that's number 33. I wasn't even aware that we had stereotypes on body shape and body odor for other races. Yeah. So... I learned something new. <laughs> People will find the weirdest ways to be bigoted, huh? Yeah, they will. It's one of the big takeaways from this is that often the things that you carry privilege in are not things you ever think about mm -hmm. because you don't have to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think people would like me very much if I showed up to class with body odor, but I wouldn't think that they would make a generalization about white people. Right. Well, I mean, and that's sort of the other point there is that it's not necessarily what you're referring to is like body odor like obviously no one's happy if you like come straight from the gym to class yeah it's not saying that like people don't like bad body odor like that's not really an offensive thing to say it's saying that for example this was a couple years ago mm -hmm. zendaya i think i said that right anyway so she wore locks to um some awards show she wore what dreadlocks her hair was in dreadlocks. oh and zendaya's uh a, yes, okay. a young actress who is African-American. Okay. And um, some, like, fashion commentator made a joke saying, based on the fact that she was wearing dreadlocks, that her hair looked like she smelled like patchouli. What which, is, what's that? It's like a fragrance, kind of? I don't know. But it's, oh. like, associated with, like... It was a racist thing to say. Okay, yeah. Basically. Sure. So it's that kind of thing where you associate a particular quality about somebody to, like, a negative stereotype. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I mean, just the arbitrary nature of... I mean, I was reading this list, and I don't doubt that she gave this a lot of thought, but how seemingly arbitrary or minimal some of these seemed to me definitely did make me think about the fact that black people or other races must be like walking around a lot of the time just throwing their hands up and they'd be like come on <laughs> like i can't even get a band-aid you know like yeah that, like, are the, you serious yeah, yeah right um like, well i mean not that this is like the whole point of your podcast but you could literally do an entire segment on black women who have experienced racism just about their hair mm. It's a huge thing. Might be tough to get a guess for that, but we'll see. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how we do a two-hour podcast about it, but... Oh, but... I mean, there's just, like, a lot of content out there. So, But it's, like, these small things that you wouldn't think about if you didn't experience it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, that I think... We basically touched on the big ones that mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about. I have one final topic 
that I want to talk about, but I want to open the door to you to uh, bring in more topics. Uh, so what else do you want to get out there to the world, get up, get, or at least get into my head about social justice that I'm still not getting? Um, I think we pretty much touched on everything. Um, I think kind of clarifying where we're both coming from in terms of like the individual experience versus like how that person exists within these other systems that they're moving between Mm -hmm. is really important. Um, and then also for this list, um, you know, we talked about it mostly in terms of white privilege and a black and white experience and our personal experiences. But I think that it's really important to remember that like the point of this is to think harder about your own experience because if you carry privilege you usually don't it's not a thing you think about because it's easy for you and it just happens um and you get to move smoothly through those areas of your life but you can apply this kind of way of thinking to almost anything Mm -hmm. um you know like it's easy for me to find a church that i want to go to in chicago i don't think twice about using a bathroom at school Whereas some people, uh, you know, like we don't have a uh, gender neutral bathroom on any of the law school floors. You have to go to like five or something like that. Mm. Stuff like that. Yeah, we didn't even touch on the whole uh, gender issue. I know that we talked in the pre-show and by that I mean a previous conversation. (laughs) But that sounds more professional if I say that. That you didn't necessarily want to go too deep down that path because gender as something that's more fluid or like as a social construct is not something that you've personally had to grapple with. Right. Yeah. Is is it something that you want to talk about at all or do you want to just save that for another pod? No, I'm honestly okay kind of touching on it in the sense of how we've talked about other things. Um, Because I think that the biggest disclaimer with like all these topics is that I can really only talk about a lot of it in the context of my personal experience as a cis white straight woman but also somebody who has more than a passing interest in these topics right but like academically you know like i can talk about it because i care about it and i've studied things like this but like my personal experience is really different from this has been a largely academic conversation which yeah is also where i seek safe haven in talking about (laughs) these topics a little bit because i mean i i'm really just trying to understand them because they don't come as naturally to me as they do to others. So let's talk about gender as a construct a little bit. And I want to start off by saying that I know people that are transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an act of dignity and personal grace to use whatever preferred pronouns they want. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would never deliberately misgender or use the incorrect pronouns to somebody or even when I'm talking about them and they're not there. You know, if I know better, then I'll do it. Right. I think that's such a good point. And I like that you use the word dignity for that because I think that, you know, it kind of goes back to a point I made earlier is that people, and it happens most with gender pronouns, I think, people who aren't receptive to it are like, what are the rules? Like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do um, <clears throat> because they're not familiar with it. But all you have to do is ask, you know, people know what they want to be called and that's what they want to be called so they're gonna clue you into it it's not gonna be like a guessing game 
Um, and I think the best kind of like parallel to that I can think of is um, like for why you should respect what somebody else's preferred pronouns are, are, um, okay, so my name's Catherine, right? But Which I go exclusively by Kate. Yeah. Not Katie, not Catherine. So if somebody calls me Catherine or Katie, I don't care, but I'm going to correct them and tell them it's Kate. But if they call me not Kate again, it annoys me because it's like, I already told you what I like to be called and that's not my name. And a lot of people have the same kind of problem is that we have a name we go by and we tell people to call us that. And um, it's kind of a similar feeling of like, well, I already told you what I want to be called and you clearly like don't care enough to remember or like don't respect me and I don't really, you know, so I don't take it super personally most of the time, but that's like the closest parallel I can think of. Or like if you meet somebody a bunch of times and they never remember your name mm. and you know that they know you. Mm-hmm. It just, it feels disrespectful that they aren't taking the time to remember that. Because mm-hmm. what we call people is important and it shows that we respect them. So it's exactly like that with pronouns, is that somebody is clearly comfortable with one thing and they tell you what it is. So it's the respectful thing to do to proceed with that. Yeah, uh, I'm all about it making people feel comfortable and treating them with respect for the most part. I, I strive to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. I often fall short. Um, <laughs> but as you know, um, but again, I think that there is a limit to this because there is, again, like I don't remember which school published it, but they published some guidelines that contained like a list of 70 different pronouns that people could go by and there are things like Z and Zer. Mm-hmm. That I, I, I have a problem with trying to assert language in an inorganic way into our ongoing dialogue as a culture in the hopes that by making them change the language, it's going to change how they feel about that. So I feel like the transgender movement, I support. You know, people mm-hmm. should just be whoever they want to be. Uh, again, I'm an individualist, like, do you all the time. But this idea that we don't have to negotiate our identities at all with other people is just an insane idea. I mean, I can walk around being a serial killer thinking I'm a good guy, but that in no way is going to change how other people (laughs) think about me. Like, I, I can think about myself whatever I want. But we, I don't know that that's the best example for this. Um, no, no, no. Well, I mean, obviously I'm not drawing any comparison between it. I'm using an illustration to drive home what I'm trying to say right. in a more articulate way. Is that I have no Your problem using... Your self-perception and the way other people perceive you should have some kind of alignment. Right. And then... Is what I'm hearing. That and that language doesn't change feelings, I feel like. Or confer more uh, embrace of this subculture of transgender people or non-binary folks or whoever. Yeah, so that pronoun usage is not something I have as much experience with. You're being very loyally right now. And I keep keep pinning (laughs) you against the wall with essentially the same question. And you keep giving me these very, uh, you're going to be a good attorney. I mean, I'll tell you that. 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that um, I, something that is important to note is um, <clears throat> that sometimes people confuse is um, the difference between like gender identity and sexual orientation because they are different mm -hmm. and gender and sex are different. So there's it's like sort of like a a three factor kind of thing of your sexual identity, sexual orientation, and gender identity could all be different things. And they all sort of exist more on a spectrum than either or. The way that I sort of like engage with this topic is that for me to engage with people, like I just don't need to know everything about them. Sure. So Sometimes you just can take people at face value because people will tell you what they're comfortable with mm -hmm. and the things that you need to know. I don't know. I have a friend who's transgender and like not to get into all the details, but I was kind of talking to my mom about it. Sorry, Care Bear. But, um, <laughs> Sweet lady. <laughs> Lovely woman. <laughs> my mom is... Okay, so my mom is very accepting. She loves this friend of mine. And my mom was kind of asking like, okay, well, like, are they gay now are they still straight like what is what even <clears throat> is that and i don't want to give too much information to like reveal who it is but um i basically just told my mom like it doesn't really matter you don't have to call them gay or straight because like it just doesn't matter like if it probably they won't aren't come up. right and like <laughs> yeah it probably won't come up you don't need to know and like if they aren't using that label then you don't need to and I think that we kind of get a little... T so labels are important. Humans love them. They're, right. We care about them. And it's how we orient ourselves in the world. Yeah, and know? frequently it's really validating to be able to call yourself something. And I think that that's sure, kind of where sure. that pronoun usage comes from. Is sure. that if the pronouns we already have don't sit right with you, you... It's normal to feel that drive to like want to come up with something else that mm -hmm. like r explains who you are mm -hmm. and typically people who use different pronouns will tell you like why that is right for them um so the labeling makes sense it's not arbitrary people aren't like trying to confuse you they're just trying to call how they feel something if that makes sense yeah it does and I don't know why it took so long for this light bulb to go off in my head, <laughs> but uh, a big takeaway I already can sense that I'm going to have from our conversation this afternoon is that you need to turn off the worst parts of internet culture, because mm -hmm. if you read the stuff that far-left activists write online, you would think that they're trying to control how everyone feels privately or... Uh, their personal opinions and they're school marming them and shaming people but you're making a very reasonable case for just empathy and sensitivity towards others and just generally doing things for other people if it doesn't hurt you yeah uh, well, you know me enough to know that that is like a, that's not obvious to me in any way uh, so the last thing I did want to uh, ask you about is for people that do commit these social faux pas, the online culture right now is very geared towards getting people fired from their jobs and uh, 
you can basically create an online mob and mm-hmm. it uh it's nothing short than a kangaroo court you know right. like twitter can be the judge and jury basically yeah. uh so what in your view as somebody who is passionate about this and wants to enact these kinds of changes uh what's the path to redemption for people look like because i don't know that we've really uh designed that at the moment i like a lot of times these people just fade away and they never come back again i mean they're excised from public life and we need to have a way to welcome as you said early in the show more people in instead of calling them out you know yeah so i have a lot of thoughts on this um so they're like countless examples of I ask good questions sometimes <laughs> so there's countless examples of people who have sort of uh, gone up in flames on Twitter or mm-hmm. social media and there's a really good Black Mirror episode about that uh, Hated in the uh, Hated in the Nation have you seen that one it's the one with the bees the bees oh no, it's no, no. I didn't see that one no. so good so um, well I don't want to give it away but anyway it's an excellent spoiler alert <laughs> For anybody that hasn't seen the new <laughs> season of Black Mirror that's been out for months. No, it's not even <laughs> season four. It's like three or something. Like, I oh, it's, for whatever. years. <laughs> it's old. It's old. But um, anyway, so the, sort of the premise of the episode is um, this like idea of like a, a Twitter villain. Mm-hmm. And um, it's set in the future. So there's these genetically modified bees. And people will do like a hashtag like kill whoever. And then the bee like embeds itself oh, in a person's brain this. and yeah, like yeah, yeah. This. but the whole conceit of the show is that like those twitter villains are not really the actual targets it's to gather all this data on people who participate in that kind of online shaming and then they're the actual targets mm-hmm. and they all die later because of these bees <laughs> <laughs> um Right. I mean, so obviously none of that's good. Like, we don't want anybody to die. But it's illustrating this point is that if you participate in that kind of online shaming, maybe you're not just as culpable, but you're still not doing the right thing. That's not a helpful thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I always say that you're, you're targeting somebody today, but they'll come for you tomorrow if you do this long enough. I mean... Right. Nobody's perfect. And I think, you know, especially on Twitter, like, it's not a nuanced platform. It's a very blunt topic. <laughs> yeah. No, I'd agree. Right. But with a lot of these things, and even spoken word, people misspeak a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you shouldn't be afraid to misspeak. We talked about this in one of my social work classes on, um, it's about uh, multiculturalism, basically. In the field of social work. And I can't think of the um, expression for this, but it's uh, frequently used to talk about, um, going back to this, going back to white people, but um, when somebody in a position of power is trying to talk about racism or something like that, it's um, it's kind of like a lexical gap or something like that where you just like lose, you're so afraid of misspeaking about it or stumbling into what you perceive to be a trap that you just sort of say like, um, and then, but it's kind of like, and you're not really saying anything because you're not sure how to proceed. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. It's like, fight, <laughs> you know, it's like fight or flight mode. You know what I yeah. mean? So if you're afraid, um, that part of your hind brain is just going to kick in and you're going to, 
not be able to think clearly and you're going to become less of an intellectual. You're just going to be right. paralyzed. Yeah. And so. I don't think that anybody should be afraid to say what they're thinking because it's that's also not productive. But, <clears throat> but it goes back to that being accountable is that um, I can express a thought and hopefully it doesn't offend anybody because that would never be my intention. But if it does, I want somebody to tell me because I should be accountable for that and I should understand the ways that my words have hurt them or impacted them. And I should feel bad if it hurt them. Mm -hmm. They're not trying, and you know, if they do it the right way, like they're not trying to tell me that I'm horrible or something like that. Right. But it's calling somebody into the conversation. We can talk about that then, and then I won't make that mistake the next time, and I can speak on that topic more knowledgeably and effectively. Or I can even invite them to speak on that topic because they're going to talk on it better than I would. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point of like giving other people a platform to talk about these issues. Um, and like an expression we use in um, like a lot of circles and like classes and stuff like that is uh, like, ouch, oops. So it's like a really easy kind of uh, like discussion rule, kind of like, you know, one person, one mic or like, I don't know, normal like rules for respect you have when you're having a conversation is um, it's really simple. Like if you said something that really bothered me, I would just say, ouch. And then you could apologize to me mm. and it would be easy and it's simple. And like, mm. we don't have to be really distressed over something and we can carry on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a good tool too. Uh, Cause it's just about being accountable more than anything. So in terms of welcoming people back into the fold, Oh, yeah, that's... Okay, so I, I'll get back to that. So I think that that's, like... What I kind of just described is, like, a starting point. That's how you can yeah. kind of avoid this escalation in the first place. Agreed. But um, if you have that happen, I think that um, somebody needs to make a genuine apology because <clears throat> frequently there are real problems that result in this. I mean, even if you misspeak, you should make some kind of statement acknowledging that you realize what was wrong with what you said and how that impacted people. Because people usually don't get up in arms about, like, literally nothing. Um, sure. I mean, throw me some examples and we can, like, parse those well, out. But I, the one that bothered me the most was uh, the way people just sprung to a conclusion so quickly about what Roseanne was saying with that drunk Ambien tweet. The tweet looked bad, mm -hmm. right? But if you listen to any of her subsequent statements and what she was actually trying to communicate and the fact that she was had had a glass of wine or beer and took an Ambien and didn't even remember doing it and like that it wasn't intended to be a racist remark... I thought that that was a genuine apology. And the, the question here, too, is also who gets to judge the genuineness of the apology? I thought that <clears throat> it was a little too hasty for uh, whatever network to just cancel her show. I mean, so the question is open. Like, when does Roseanne get to work again? Or does well, she? I don't know. You're a free market kind of guy. Like, doesn't some of that dictate it? If nobody thinks they can make money off of her brand, then isn't that the free market at play? 
Just yeah, to play devil's yeah. advocate. I yeah, mean, no, no, no. I'm just I mean, suggesting that, that's a, a, great, a point that I think you've made that's before a great in rejoinder. our uh, pre-show conversations. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. And, well, so what else, the other thing I'll say, too, about that, like, not taking a side either way on this, but that wasn't the only thing she'd ever done that people had a problem with. <laughs> right. Maybe Roseanne's not the best example. Maybe not. And also, she's a public figure, so I think that that has a different influence and mm-hmm. like sets up a different kind of example um i mean so there was an example a couple of years ago of just like a normal regular person who uh was flying to south africa for a job and she tweeted something about something really distasteful about AIDS. hiv yeah I remember, HIV I AIDS. This. yeah yeah and uh she was absolutely roasted because it was inappropriate and it was racist and it was wrong um, but she lost her job and had, like, a lot of repercussions for that. Um, yeah, she got what the kids call doxxed. She yes. had, like, her address. And, yeah. By the time the plane landed, her, her life was over as she knew it. <laughs> right. Right. And she did offer an explanation after, and she meant it as a joke, but it was distasteful and it was wrong, and she apologized. Right, right, and, right. you know, people should be allowed to come back from that because yes. you have to let people grow. Right. And it, I don't know her, sure. you know, but it appeared that she was trying to grow from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think a good example of this is I, this book just came out. I think it's called Rising Out of Hatred. It's by Eli Saslow. I just read a review of it. I, I really want to read the book, but it's about uh, Derek Black, the son of um, one of the leaders in the KKK. Okay. Or maybe maybe it's not that, but it's, it's sort of um, that sort of white supremacist sure. area. Yeah. And they're uh, all the same. Th- they're not all the same. They have similar but... platforms. <laughs> so, but it was that kind of platform, and um, he like really supported that movement up until he went to college. And um, the book is kind of about college being a turning point for him and uh he met a couple jewish students who invited him to shabbat with them week after week yeah and i I think he did an interview on uh this american life because i remember this from one of the episodes but go on tell the rest of the story yeah so uh i saw it on npr and then also like the national education association educators association nea that's Um, definitely not where i saw it (laughs) right (laughs) so um but yeah, so the author did this interview about um, doing the book about Derek Black and um, people reaching out to him and trying to show him what the people he thought he hated were actually like mm-hmm. turned him around completely. Yeah. And it took a long time, like like years. Right, I mean, it was right. his whole college experience, basically. Right. But I think that those students who invited him to things and reached out to him, that was really brave and they didn't need to do it. And that kind of kindness and empathy and desire to share is what we all really need. Yeah, and I guess his path to redemption was the fact that he showed up to the Shabbat dinner at some point. Eventually, Eventually, yes. yeah. Yeah, I think... That's, so, like, such an extreme example, but... but... I think the girl on the plane is the best one because <laughs> she still has to live, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't want her to die in the streets wearing rags. That's a very unsocial justice message. Right. So, I I think... And she's not sitting on coffers of money like Roseanne. 
Uh, right. <laughs> so I, I think that that is one of the more disturbing things. And then there's just, you know, the fact that we can throw something online and or somebody can take a cell phone video of you doing something that might be starting two minutes into whatever altercation. You don't know all the facts, but it becomes viral and uh, it can really change somebody's uh, path on, in life. I think that's, so it's a tool that we need to learn to use more wisely. Uh, I don't think that yes. we, uh, we've come around to how to use this whole internet thing <laughs> uh, yet. So I, I, I like the fact that I got to talk to you today because you've really clarified what the average person, not the insane people that scream on <laughs> into the abyss on Twitter. Uh, I mean, I think that there are a lot of things to be angry about right, right. on both sides. And, yes. you know, people use the internet for catharsis and to express their viewpoint. And, like, all obviously all of it means something, but sure. it's also important to sort of... Uh, this is like a social work perspective. If you look at the what somebody is doing and then sort of the other contexts in their life, what they do usually makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. based on the other things that are going on for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I know people use social media as an outlet and that if you bumped into those people on the street, there's very few of them that would immediately launch into a conversation uh, about these topics we've been talking about and mm -hmm. get all up in your face and call you a bigot and a homophobe and whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, I want to make sure that we're using the tool wisely still because it does have real-life consequences for people, especially the people that might have been inaccurately maligned. Uh, mm -hmm. So, Well, and I think... So I, I've used accountability a lot, but that is important to me, especially in this context. And I think that, you know, so the girl on the plane making a crude joke is a good example, is that she had to be accountable for yes. what she said. Yes. And I, based on what I read about it after, she tried to be. And it goes back to that, like, hated in the nation example. All the people who go after people on social media end up not being held accountable for anything. So we should all be conscious of our place in that. And, uh, you know, the mob mentality is really hard to shake online because no one's there to say, like, I see you, I know you, that's wrong. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that both sides of the aisle need more accountability of excising the worst part of their parties. Yes. And saying, we don't condone this. This is wrong. We don't stand for this. I mean... And people that have very reasonable positions get drowned out, such as yourself. I gestured towards Kate. I uh, get drowned out by the hysteria. And so it's super important that we police ourselves and, and uh, we, we try to every day get a little bit better. And, uh, I don't know if we're doing it at the moment, but we'll get there. Yeah, that's why... It's conversations like this, Kate, I know, yeah. honestly. That's why this is some real hand-holding by uh... <laughs> Well, that's why I was really excited to talk to you because, you know, I think that I really have a pretty moderate approach and, like, if you're going to call it radical anything, it's, like, radical empathy. Um, sure. Yeah. Car Carl Rogers. Isn't that Carl Rogers? Yeah. He's a psychologist. He's Humanist, about... yeah. He's a humanist, right? Yes. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, so it's really like radical empathy more than anything else. Um, but yeah, so people who think that it's this approach is like really radical, um, it's I'm really just advocating for like listening to other people mm-hmm. and accepting their experiences. I think that's a nice note to end on. How about you? You feel? <laughs> I think that that's good. Feel good. <laughs> he rocks in the treetop all of the alone, hopping and a bopping and a singing his song. All the little birds on Zebra Street talk to hear the robin go tweet tweet tweet, rock and robin. You've been listening to Dialogue De Novo. Until next time, thanks for hearing us out. Dialogue De Novo is produced by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Executive producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Supervising producer Michael Coffin. Technical producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Edited by Richard Leibovitz. Audio mixed by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Music written by Jimmy Thomas. Music performed by Bobby Day. Dialogue De Novo is a Loyola University Chicago School of Law student-initiated capstone project founded by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Technical production made possible by SoundCloud. Copyright 2018.